Well, good morning, sinners. Good morning, saints. Uh, I am coming at you live from Winkler Bible Camp, where both our Young Life and Wildlife youth are having a blast at youth camp. I just want to do a shout out to Pastor Andrew and his team for doing a wonderful job with our kids, both physically and spiritually, during this uh, five days week of youth camp. Uh, it's a day camp. They take the bus and come back and forth from Winkler Bible Camp. And so, Shout out to Andrew and his team as they lead our kids. It's fabulous. And I, I can honestly say our servant leaders are top not, notch. Not nuts, but notch. Some of them are a little crazy, but they're top notch. And uh, we had, it was an honor for us to have a bunch of uh, servant leaders this year, the summer staff as we call them, Max Anderson, Carlton Reimer, Jesse Machalski, Andrew Ketting, uh, Samara Nam, uh, Micah Davison, Alyssa Sanchi, uh, they were fantastic. They ran six weeks of kids camp. Absolutely fantastic. And I would ask that you, the community of Soul Sanctuary, would not only continue to keep them in their prayers as they move on to school and other things, but uh, uh, that you add them to your social media or whatever. Drop them a thank you somehow for what they did representing Soul this summer. Absolutely stellar, top-notch group of young people. Now, last week... We talked about our freedoms as Christians, as, as uh, many in the church at Corinth had wrongly identified knowledge and rights as a basis for Christian behavior. Uh, we addressed how Christians actually should be handling both the essentials and non-essentials of the faith. Then Paul went on to say with great clarity in verse 24 last week, remember, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Huge, huge words. And so Paul was basically saying that freedom does not mean to, to seek my own good. It means to be free in Christ in such a way that one can truly seek the benefit and build up another person. It's not all about me. And so what we're doing is we're continuing in our series. We call it From a Friend. And it's uh, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And we find ourselves at a passage that features, well, what I'd actually say, one of the most difficult and even most controversial passages in the Bible. In fact, given the fact that we now live in a post-feminist society, most pastors will stay clear of this passage uh, to avoid any conflict or whatever. But of course, obviously, I get all the difficult passages. This one's assigned to me. So here we are. We're going to look at it. I hope you approach it with an open mind. This is probably one of the most complex, most controversial muddying of any of the texts of comparable length in the New Testament. A survey of the history of, of interpretation of this passage reveals how many different exegetical options there are. There's a myriad of questions um, uh, that should really inspire us to have uh, a fair measure of um, tentativeness as we approach the part, especially as one who's going to try to interpret it, which is me. And so with all that said, I hope you're ready to be challenged. Now, we moved into chapter 11. Uh, we're starting and we're going to pick it up at verse 2, and it goes like this. Paul's writing, he says, I praise you for remembering me and everything and holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is man, the head of every, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head and it's the same as having her head shaved for if a woman does not cover her head she might as well have her hair cut off but 
if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man not ought to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, women, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Judge for yourself, he writes. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him, but if a woman has long hair, it's her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. And if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. So here's the question, people. Are you ready for it? Do women need to cover their heads with a hat or a scarf or a kerchief or a babushka or a veil when they go to church? That's just one question that comes out of this whole passage. See, in previous centuries, though, because this is really what this passage is known for, because in previous centuries, the answer to this question is always yes. Um, the answer is at least partly based on the interpretation of this passage of Scripture. Now, there are some churches, there are some denominations that really get uptight about this whole passage. But for the most part, of uh, here in North America, the tradition of women covering their heads for worship on Sunday morning has actually been abandoned. Now, let me give you some history. The practicing of women of covering their heads and wearing veils while in church has been an age-old practice, well established uh, 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 in a variety of Christian traditions. And it's actually still practiced by uh, uh, some Orthodox, uh, Coptic, Roman Catholic, Anglican, Lutheran, Anabaptist. That's the Mennonite Hutterite, in case you didn't know what I was talking about there. Some Pentecostals, some Methodists, and many others. They would taught and teach that women should have their head covering in public worship. And some would go so far as teach that women belonging to these uh, faith traditions should also wear these head coverings outside of the church. Now, the practice of Christian head covering for praying, for prophesying, was inspired by a traditional interpretation of the passage that we have before us today. And although the head covering was practiced by most Christian women until the latter part of the 20th century, it is actually now a minority practice amongst 21st century Christians in the West. I hope you're hearing me. Uh, it, though there are areas in... Uh, Eastern Europe and other countries like Ethiopia, India, Pakistan, South Korea, the Middle East, where it is still a normal practice in those parts. And what I'm saying is it's a normal practice for Christians, Christian women, to cover their head when they are in church. Now, in the early church, let's go back even further. In the early church, head covering was unanimously practiced by women. This was confirmed by the early church fathers like Clement of Alexandria, uh, Tertullian, um, uh, even uh, Hippolytus of Rome, uh, Origen of Alexander, they all wrote making mention that women's heads were always covered. The early church history tells us that Rome and Antioch and Africa, in those areas, the custom of wearing a head covering became the norm for the church. Head covering both in the public while um, attending church was re 
regarded, like I said, as customary for Christian women. A, a woman did not, who did not wear a head covering was then interpreted to be a prostitute or an adulteress. Just letting that rest for a moment. Even in the 16th century in Europe, laws stipulated that married women who had uncovered their hair in public was evidence of their infidelity. So it's interesting how something like this carries through all these cultures. The Reformation hits. Martin Luther encouraged wives to wear a veil in public worship. John Calvin, the founder of Reformed churches. John Knox, the founder of Presbyterian. They both called for women to wear head coverings in public worship. Eventually, as time went on, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, held that women, especially in a religious assembly, should keep on their veil. And at one point, nearly all Christian women wore head coverings during church services. So eventually, in parts of the Western world, many women started to wear bonnets as their head coverings, little hats, right? You know, hats later became actually predominant. And, you know, how eventually, uh, eventually, though, in North America and some parts of Western Europe, the practice of covering their heads started to decline. And uh, with exceptions like the Quakers or, like I said, the Anabaptists, the Mennonites, the Hutterites, Old German Baptist brethren, Amish, traditional Catholics, uh, but there was also holiness Christians uh, like the United Pentecostals and some other charismatic sects along with even Plymouth Brethren. And the list can go on. They, they, they fought for this. This was very important to them. Now, I can actually spend a whole lot of time trying to exegete or break down this passage ad nauseum. Uh, that's not what I want to do this, this morning because I really don't think it's going to be helpful for us today. I, I, I would actually like to ask all of you on your own time to read the passage and see uh, what God is speaking to you through it. Isn't that interesting? See, just take some time and study the passage. Uh, I think it would bring up a whole lot of great discussion around your dinner table, right? Now, if we can only have those discussions without hurting feelings and practicing cancel culture, that would be a whole other story. But see if you can do that. So many scholars, when it comes to this passage, many scholars believe that... that uh, Women in church were likely influenced by uh, the popularity of Roman fertility cult, the Roman fertility cult of Artemis, uh, which actually encouraged women to flaunt their sexuality, to flaunt their freedom to a, to a degree. And it was so scandalous that even the Roman establishment um, was kind of, you know, a little bit uneasy with what was going on. So these women would then also have different types of worship and deviant sex. They would shirk off the concept of marriage or childbearing. Uh, there would be possible abortions, infanticide being practiced, uh, immodest dress that made um, uh, uh, these adherents to these customs indistinguishable from prostitutes. And so basically these people would go, they would worship, and uh, they get all unglued, and you couldn't tell the difference between them and the prostitute. And what some historians think is that this started becoming practice within the church. Now remember, Paul is now in these sections that are upcoming, he's dealing with worship. And now he's talking about a, pro a propriety in worship, and there's something that's going on. And it seemed that enough of these women, women would have joined the church, and the, the speculation whether or not the reputation of the church is now being tarnished, although it's Corinth, how can you tarnish it anymore? But uh, it could have been repelling potential converts. Um, it could have been giving the Romans authorities another reason to be sus suspicious of this church. 
which is really the last thing that Christians needed. So their church services were out of control. They were totally disunified. And so the majority of the biblical scholars have held that verses 4 to 7 refer to a, a literal veil or covering cloth that a woman has to use when praying or prophesying. Verse 15 of this passage refers to long hair and the long hair of a woman for modesty. And so there are several key sections of our passage in which commentators have held very differing opinions about, which have resulted in a diversity of practices regarding the uses of head coverings. I just need to tell you that. You need to know what we're walking into. Now, although there's a variety of interpretations on this passage, the most popular are these, and here they are. The first one is that this passage is all about gender-based authority. Some people use the word headship, but they'll say, well, headship's not found in the Bible. Whatever. Gender-based authority, all right? Uh, and, and this is where it's interpreted that Paul connects the use or the non-use of head coverings with biblical distinctions between each gender, right? So in verse 3, Paul writes, Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman. And he immediately continues with a gender-based teaching on the use of head coverings. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying great disgraces her head so it's gender-based another interpretation is uh some guys are commentators will call it glory and worship um, paul explains that the use or in the non-use of the head coverings is related to god's glory during times of prayer times of prophecy prophecy and he states that the man is the glory of god and that for this reason a man not have his head covered and in the same verse paul states that the woman is the glory of man and he explains in that statement that the subsequent two verses by referring to the woman's creation. And then he concludes with, it's for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head, in verse 10. In other words, the glory of God, man, is to be uncovered during the times of worship, while the glory of man, woman, is to be covered. These are just interpretations. Another interpretation is angels. Verse 10, for it's this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Where does that come from? A lot of people are really stumped that Paul throws this in here. Many interpreters admit that Paul doesn't provide much of an explanation for the role of angels in this context at all. But Paul does make reference to angels in other passages, such as Ephesians 3, 1 Peter 1, um, and Timothy. Sorry, 1 Timothy and Peter makes reference too. So you're wondering, you know, is Paul making reference that we can pull, but we're not quite sure. Like I said, this is a tough text. There's also the nature uh, and, and hair length is another um, subject. And verses 13 to 15, Paul asks a rhetorical question about the propriety of head coverings, and then he answers it himself with a, a lesson from nature. Judge for yourselves, he says. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him. But if a woman has long hair, uh, it's for her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. Okay, look at our culture. Never mind. Remember the 60s and 70s where guys were wearing long hair, women were cutting their hair short. Like, interesting, right? So in this passage, some people see Paul as indicating that since a woman naturally covers her head with long hair, she likewise ought to cover it with a cloth and a covering while praying or prophesying. Others interpret 
and see the statement that her hair is given as a covering, indicating that all instances of head covering in the chapter refer only to the covering of long hair. If you're not confused by now, you should be, because we're still not finished. Because other translators or uh, commentators talk about church practice in verse 16. And Paul responds to those who may disagree with his teaching about the use of head coverings, and he basically says, if anybody wants to be contentious about this, look at it, if you've got a problem with this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. And so this may indicate now to everybody, let's say you, you had a problem with wearing head covering, this may indicate that the head coverings were considered a standard, right? A universal Christian practice, symbolic practice rather than a local custom. So it, it could be like right across, Paul's just saying, look at Christians and churches, they're spread out geographically. They, they contain a, a diversity of cultures, but they all practice covering for female members of the church. So, as I said, we have various interpretive issues here. Commentators, congregations, have a diversity of conclusions and practices regarding First of all, just head coverings. Now, one primary area of the debate is whether Paul's call for men to uncover their heads and women to cover their heads was intended to be followed by Christians outside the first century Corinthian church. Some churches view Christian head covering as a practice that Paul intended for all Christians in all locations during all time periods so that they could continue to practice within their congregations. Some people feel that way. Now, many commentators feel that Paul is sort of establishing a, a chain of command of authority. Remember earlier I talked about gender roles and headship. You know, after all the context, when you read the context here in chapter 11, this passage is about authority. Now, I know I just have to say that once, and there are people who are just getting their shorts in a knot. Work with me. The word head here um, it, it being the idea of authority. And so Paul writes that the husband is the authority over the wife and that Christ is the authority over the husband and God is the authority over Christ. Now, some women have cringed as I've probably stepped on some open wounds even just by saying that. And this gets into issues which are still being debated today in our society. Now, there are two sides in the church in the understanding of headship and authority. There's the complementarianism, which is a theological viewpoint that men and women have different but complementary roles and responsibilities in marriage, in family life, and in religious leadership. The other view is egalitarian. It's derived from that French word egal, which means uh, equal or level. And so egalitarianism generally means equality and authority and responsibilities between the genders in contrast to complementarianism. Now, if I'm going to be honest with you, yeah, I would say that I'm in the egalitarian camp, but I also, when I go through Scripture, I also find myself in, as a small-c complementarian. You figure that out. I'm just being honest. Now, hear me out as I try to explain myself. You know, I don't believe that the Bible has ever taught that God favors the man over the woman. The Bible does teach that God made man first, and then from man he formed woman. When God looked at man, when he looked at Adam, he said, you're a piece of work. It's not good that you should live alone. And so he made woman from the man that she would be, uh, remember that term, help meet for him? 
Now, some people misinterpret that term. Uh, that word help me comes from an old English uh, word meaning fit. It's a help that is a fit for him, created for him. And so no way does it, uh, uh, no way does it even signify a subservient position. God saw, think about it, God saw that man by himself could never make it. And thus, he created woman. And as God said, he created woman for the man from his side. Now, Paul feels, uh, some feel that Paul is establishing a chain of command. I do think that there is something that we need to look at this, and it's worth noting. The authority over man is Christ, even as the authority over woman is the man. And again, it's pertaining to marriage. That's it. And I feel that if the man, specifically the husband, though, listen very carefully, if the man, specifically the husband, is not under the authority of Christ, then a woman has to jump that missing link. And I don't believe that God intended that a godly woman is to be under the authority of any ungodly man. God never meant marriage. Again, never meant marriage to be a slavery kind of situation or a tyranny kind of situation where some big dummy rules over his wife with force or whatever. I'm totally opposed to that kind of interpretation or understanding of the scripture where one thinks, you know, a woman has to be in submission to her husband, whatever the cost. So I'll say this, though. Complementarianism is dangerous. And it's dangerous when we stereotype gender roles. Scripture doesn't give a lot of detail as to how God's design for man and woman is supposed to be worked out. So traditional division of labor, you know, the woman's in the kitchen changing diapers, the man is at work, you know, you let the woman do all the house chores, you know, that doesn't square with the biblical design. The Bible doesn't talk about that. So we got to be careful that we don't have dangerous, stereotypical gender roles. Complementarianism is dangerous when it fails to clearly distinguish itself from various uh, patriarchalism or hierarchalism. If, if people only hear somebody pushing in one direction, that man is over the woman. I've heard this many a time. You know, they, they, they make it easier to lump all complementarianisms together and, and pushing it in their one direction. We can't do that. You can't do that. It's not what the passage is talking about. And complementarianism is dangerous when, when one is zealous in defending it but fails to live it out biblically. This is probably the biggest issue here. See, there's a real danger at hand when the goal of defending complementarianism becomes so prominent that it sidelines even the most difficult goal of living it out in a beautiful, life-giving way. You know, theological integrity, I'll say this, theological integrity is hard and important, but godliness and love are equally as important and probably harder to live out. Think about that. To affirm the truth with without also applying it to ourselves, is not just incomplete. It's actually a step backward. You know, again, I, uh, context is that, you know, um, husbands and wives, it's very important here in this whole aspect. Um, and, and yet we're called as husbands, if you're married, you're called to love your wife as Christ loved the church who gave his life for her. And so if you're not living that love out, there's, there's, you're missing the whole point. And finally, complementarianism is dangerous when uh, 
people fail to celebrate the contribution of women. Right? We need to be enthusiastic about the myriad of ways that God calls and uses women in our society. In the Bible, women were involved in ministry. They were involved in leadership in many different ways. Just pick out one example. Um, many women throughout the Old Testament, for instance, were prophets or, or judges. There was Miriam, Deborah, Hilda, Hilda, and so on. And the New Testament, the gift of prophecy is clearly given to both men and women. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 21, and of course in our text uh, in 1 Corinthians here, 11. It's presumed that women are prophesying. They have spiritual gifts. They have something to say to the church to make a contribution. Now, again, this passage is full of difficulties for anyone, and not just us living in the 21st century. And so I come back to the big question, and uh, uh, again, should women wear head coverings at Seoul? Right? I was actually tempted to put on my baseball hat and, and preach, but I think it would be too much of a distraction today. You know, but let's say I'm going to ask some of you, should you embrace your inner Mennonite or your inner Hutterite roots, right? Now, remember, what we have here in 1 Corinthians is probably just one of four letters that Paul has written to the Corinthians. We actually only have two, if you remember our teaching from earlier, we only have two of his letters at hand. And so as we read 1 Corinthians, I need to remind you that Paul referenced a, a saying back in chapter 5. He said, remember, in my former letter, which proves the fact that we don't have all the letters to the Corinthians church. And so what this church did, obviously, was send Paul a list of questions. He writes them back with some answers. So now here's the problem, people. We really don't know what the questions were, right? We can only speculate as we read through 1 Corinthians uh, and 2 Corinthians. We only have the answers, Paul's response. And some people feel that um, Paul may have been really upset with the other two letters that he sent to the church and that they never made the Bible because they were not inspired, if you know what I'm saying. We don't know. We just know that they're not around and we know that we got First and Second Corinthians. So we only have the answers. We don't have the questions. And since we don't have the previous letter, you know, this actually might be a, an ongoing debate or a dialogue that we are actually just jumping into the middle of it, and we're trying to look at the answers, and we don't know the questions, and all of this makes it more complicated, and all of these issues actually make this a complicated chapter. And as I said earlier in the context, it's authority and respect of, for God. God-given authority. And that would include our gender roles, and of course, in our culture, this is controversial. See, God thinks that there are gender roles gender rules and roles that should be honored. And so we have to ask the question, what, what's happening here in Corinth? And, and I think that what's happening in Corinth is actually like what's happening in our culture, is that they are not respecting God-given gender roles or even acknowledging that gender is binary and, and, and not this massive spectrum of what it could be. In addition to that, Paul talks about angels. I think this is interesting. Because I think he might be referring to rebellion. Remember, this church is out of control. And Paul might be referring to rebellion, dishonoring and disrespecting the head of authority. When you think about it and you go back, really started in heaven. There was God, and then there was the angels. And then some of the angels decided that they didn't like the authority. They wanted to topple the authority. They wanted a new governance. They wanted things to be different. And so what did they do? They declared war against God's authority as the head in heaven, right? 
and they are now known as Satan and his demons. And what Paul may be saying here is that this dishonor and disregard for authority, this lack of accepting whatever role God has made for you, is nothing new. It started as a war in heaven. It's nothing new. We've been there before. And when Satan and his demons came down to earth, they brought with them rebellion. They wanted to mar what was happening on God's creation. And the Bible says that rebellion is as witchcraft, and witchcraft is one of the ways that we invite the demonic into our lives, as well as rebellion. And whatever is happening here, there's a disregard for the gender roles and a disregard for God-given authority, and those are the problems and the issues. Now, think about it. Paul is writing as an authority to bring clarity to those who don't regard authority. We have a mess. And this raises a bigger question than the first question of head coverings. What is the Christian's obligation with respect to keeping customs or traditions that were kept in biblical times? What's our obligations when it comes to customs or traditions here in the 21st century? Nearly every biblical scholar recognizes the differences between principles and methods or customs. Principles are the commands of God that apply to all people at all time, in every culture, in every life situation, and they are unchanging. For example, do not murder. Exodus 20, verse 13. It remains valid then as it does today. Customs or methods are those things which are variant, local applications of principles that they're constantly changing. They're, they are things that don't transcend time and space. And so as Christianity goes from one culture to another culture to another culture, the principles are timeless, but the methods and the customs are constantly changing. For example, in the Bible, we, we see the principle of tithing, right? And in those days, in the Old Testament, it was done with denarius or shekels. So does that mean that the only way that we are obedient to God today in the 21st century when we give our tithes and when we give our offerings, that we should do it in denarius or shekels? Well, the answer is, of course not. You know, the, the, the unit, the monetary unit itself was customary. Just as clothes and styles are subject to change from culture to culture and place to place, the principle of modesty sort of applies to all generations, but how modesty is lived out, how it's manifested, will differ from one culture to another culture, from one time to another. And so we need to understand those things that are customary. Case in point, the Bible says in Romans 1 and, and uh, yeah, in Romans and in First and Second Corinthians and in First Thessalonians, uh, greet each other, Paul writes it, greet each other with a holy kiss. Now, I've been a recipient of that back when I made my first journey to the Soviet Union back in 1991. It was a common greeting as my dad, myself, and another Canadian would get off the plane, get off the train, get out of a car, and we were met by other believers, uh, other pastors, Pentecostal, Baptist pastors. First thing they would do would grab your cheek and plant a big wet one right on your lips. Been there, done that. I understand it. But... Is it something that we do now? Could you imagine doing that today? If new people would walk into church and all of a sudden we began kissing them, I think there would be a lot of lawsuits. 
I think there may be a lot of fist fights. You know, I'm not sure about you, but if I walked into a church and people tried kissing me or my wife, I, I think I'm going to be looking for another church to go to. It takes the name Friendly Neighborhood Church to a whole new level. And if they're trying to justify it to me, hey, we're just being biblical. I'll have to, and I would have to say that in that culture, it means something totally different than what it means in our culture today. And there are still some cultures that if you go there, they're still going to hug you. They're going to give you maybe a warm kiss on the cheek, but it's a cultural way of doing things. It's not a scriptural mandated way. Consider the following text. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 6. He said, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. But truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So, let me ask you a question. When you fast, and I trust and I hope you do, when you fast, do you anoint your head with oil? Why or why not? Do you have to? Well, no. Well, why? Because anointing your head with oil is not the point of the passage. Do you see that? Anointing your head with oil is not the point of the passage. It's a culturally embedded application in the point of the passage. And the point of the passage is that when we fast, or if we do any other act of piety, it should be done before God and not before men. It's all about what we do before God, not before each other. We should be seeking God's approval, God's attention, not the approval of others. And so therefore, it's saying, look, at, try to look normal. Do what you would normally do. And in this case, given the cultural standards of that particular time, what you would normally do would be to anoint your hair with oil, right? Today, you would say, you know, if you're going to fast, make sure you fast that you, that you uh, sorry, make sure that you shave, that you brush your teeth, brush your hair, tuck in your shirt, act like it's just another day. It's the same principle, but it's slightly different cultural application. And so with head coverings, the point in 1 Corinthians 11 has to do not with overturning the order of creation when we start to worship Christ. Well, men and women are equal in respect to our dignity and worth and equal with respect to our salvation graces, there are certain differences that ought to be maintained. It's just the way we were created. Women should look like women, is what Paul is saying. Men should look like men. Married men should honor, sorry, married women should honor their husbands. Married men should lead the home in love with love and respect to their wives. You know, getting saved shouldn't motivate us to rebel against any created order. It should make us love and serve within the created order as we were originally designed and intended to do. And this becomes a whole new, whole new life lesson at this point. However, in the Corinthian culture, the way to look like a married woman was to cover your head. That's what married women did. The goal then for modern readers is not to run out and now buy a new head covering. It's to translate the principle into the modern context and application. Great theologian J.I. Packer, he said, the biblical revelation was given in terms of Eastern culture 
environment and thought forms, all very different from our modern industrial Western world. And it has to be translated into modern terms before people can fully grasp its relevance. You know, if we were to go on the street and you ask anybody on the street in our culture, what's our cultural sign, what's our cultural signal that uh, somebody is married as opposed to being single, and uh, you'll learn a fair bit from our culture. And again, if you're going to say, how do you identify a married woman in our culture, people are going to say, well, a married woman usually wears a ring on her left finger. I'm pretty sure in our culture here in Canada, when you ask the question, how do you identify a married woman, you're not going to hear people say she wears a hat or she has a kerchief or she has a veil. You know? A, a hat in our culture on a female doesn't say I'm a married woman. It's probably saying I'm having a bad hair day or it's incredibly cold out here or this is my new fashion statement. There's nothing wrong with any of these things, but it doesn't really address the main concern of the passage. And I think that's the point. The goal is not to reproduce first century cultural norms. The goal is to submit to the spirit of the passage. So how do you maintain the biblical principle with the various cultural methods? It seems like that in, in the Corinthian culture, women were behaving in unacceptable ways because of their newfound freedom and liberty in Jesus. And they would take their head covering off. And, and so maybe that in our culture, let me give you a relevant example. Maybe that means as a married woman, when you're going out and you're going out with the ladies, you remove your wedding ring when you go out for the night on the town. Ooh, that's harsh, right? But when we do that, you're communicating something that is rebellious, that is actually nefarious, and it's open to sin and temptation. So what was happening in that culture was that they were doing, what they were doing was communicating rebellion against a God-given biblical principles on behavior. Paul is talking about behavior. And some of you might be thinking, well, Jerry, maybe you're being hard on the church here. Really? Let me state a simple fact. The church in Corinth is a dumpster fire. It's an absolute disaster. They are an absolute mess. Now, keep this in mind when you're, maybe you're one of those people who says, you know, we need to be like a New Testament church. This was a New Testament church. Paul's writing to a church. Now, think about this. Its members are going out with temple prostitutes. They're getting drunk on communion. They're messing with demons, right? They, they go, they participate in pagan rituals that they're not supposed to. One guy is living and sleeping with his his uh, mother-in-law, and nobody has a problem with any of this. Nobody's calling each other out. This is a dump dumpster fire. They're taking each other to court. They're suing each other for whatever reason they can find. Do you still want to be a New Testament first century church? This is one gong show, and Paul has to write them, and he has to teach them what's expected of them and how they should act as believers, that there is order there is not chaos. And so we forget sometimes that they, these epistles, as they're called, these letters are just that. They're letters. It's important to keep in mind that, you know, um, while these, the, these epistles were written for us, right, they were not written to us. 
These letters are packed with important theological observations, and they should include lengthy discussions concerning how first century house churches operated. In other words, these letters, they actually have a, a context. They are addressing very practical problems, and as I said earlier, we're not sure exactly what they were. The epistles are never meant to be interpreted and applied as universal law but rather they provide us with an instructive and inspired glimpse into how Jesus' teachings were actually lived out by real people in real communities facing real challenges. And it's not the details found in the letters that we should seek to in, uh, imitate. It's the attitudes. It's everything behind it. It's the spirit of the letter. The details like head coverings and circumcision and meat offered to idols and widow management and hair length, whatever, are, the, are rarely timeless people. But the attitudes behind it, as much as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. Don't cause your brother to stumble. Avoid the appearance of evil. Those are the attitudes behind it. Those provide guidelines that instruct us today as Christians. And so the questions we should be asking ourselves are not, should we eat meat sacrificed idols? Should women wear head coverings? The questions we need to be ask, asking ourselves is, how can we find peace when Christians feel convicted in different ways? How do we avoid unnecessarily offending others? And many times, distinguishing between a custom or a method and a principle is relatively an easy matter. But not always. Case in point, this passage. And sometimes it's difficult to make that distinction. So let me give you a principle to apply if you cannot decide if something is a custom or a principle. Remember I asked you at the beginning to read the passage of Scripture? Read it over. If you find yourself in a quandary and you cannot decide if something is a custom or a principle, my suggestion to you is this. Treat it as a principle. If you, treat it as a, if you treat a custom as a principle, the only guilt you'll bear is being overcautious. But if you take a principle of God and you just treat it like a custom and you don't observe it, then actually you've sinned against God. So if you're faced with unclarity as you study, treat the biblical teaching as if it was a principle. And so a principle is to respect God, God-given authority. And the method can defer, differ sorry, from culture to culture. And ultimately, the most important emphasis Paul is giving here is not a negative one, but actually he's giving a positive one. He's not seeking to oppress. He's seeking or, or to suppress, um, but to point men and women to the beauty of what God as created in making male and female as distinct genders. Paul's aim was not to divide the church over the ways that we have misused his instructions. He wanted to unite the church in God-honoring worship that affirms our shared humanity, both male and female. And there is no question as to equality. There is no question as to differences. Both exist, and they are not in contradiction. And so as I close, I... I think we have to remember, first of all, that there are many faithful believers who will disagree with some of the conclusions that I have shared today. 
and I recognize and I understand that there are some other positions uh, that are relatively faithful to the text. I don't think that they're the most accurate. But I also don't think that such believers are in a position of, oh, they're false teaching, right? There are issues that we should be able to discuss lovingly and carefully with the emphasis on what the Bible actually says or doesn't say. And also we have to recognize that men in the church have abused their positions as head, whatever it is taken to mean, many times in the past. And that there are women in the church who are hurt and who are scarred by that mistreatment. And we must feel for these women and the pain that they have endured, and they need to know that we love them and we pray that God would bring healing to them by his care and the care that he extends through his people, those that surround. And I think we need to recognize that this pain may make it very hard for some to trust that, you know, my understanding of this passage is biblically accurate or even faithful. This is fine. I'll just say this. I'm happy to have all types of people in our church body. And, and we would only ask that those who disagree, that maybe they would be patient with each other. We, we are not ever going to agree on everything together, but we need to mutually seek and honor God and understand the truth and each other in this process. But the actions of sinful men who have abused their power are not going to be the final statement on what God's intention of this biblical text is. Let me summarize this way. I actually believe that we can affirm headship and equality at the same time. That's why I say I'm egalitarian with a small c complementarian. We can and we should affirm a prominent place for women in the ministry of the church. We should not see men and women as independent, but interdependent. We should affirm that the differences between men and women are a part of God's design and not merely social constructs. And may God be glorified and may his people be built up as we do these things in this church and with our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that we may remember that our views of life are often shallow, superficial, and inadequate. But whenever we conform to the divinely given order, we find ourselves opening a door into joy and love and peace, such as maybe we have never dreamed of, that your yoke is easy, your burden is light. And we pray that we may indeed discover this, and as men and women together in this church fulfill the demands of the headship given to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Soul Sanctuary. Go now and trust God's mercy for your strength. Proclaim the good news wherever God calls you. Do not set yourselves apart from others even during this time of COVID. But be all things to all people for the sake of the gospel. And may God give you the strength and the freedom of an eagle. May Christ be the bread that nourishes and renews you. And may the Holy Spirit be the rising wind beneath your wings. Go in peace and live the church. See you next week.